snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors, this is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. On October the 5th, in the full view of cameras and eager journalists, Sarah Daniels, permanent secretary of the Swedish Academy, announced the winner of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature. The Nobel Prize in Literature 2017 is awarded to the English writer Kasuo Ishiguro, who in novels of great emotional force has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. Following the unconventional laureateship of American musician Bob Dylan in 2016, the selection of this British author no doubt takes a U-turn to a more mainstream interpretation of modern literature. However, though not entirely a dark horse, Katsuo Ishiguro may not be on everyone's radar for the Nobel Prize in Literature. So, in today's program, we will profile this low-key wordsmith and introduce to you some of his most noted works. For the past 30 years, this has been the world of Stevens the butler. A man cannot call himself well contented until he has done all he can to be of service to his employer. In 1993, a film titled The Remains of the Day hit theatres worldwide, starring award-winning actors Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. The movie is set during pre-World War II Britain, where a punctilious duty-bound butler is tormented by his love for a fellow housekeeper and his commitment to his pro-Nazi master. This subtle, delicate, yet powerful masterpiece received eight Oscar nominations and introduced audiences to Kazuo Ishiguro, the mastermind behind the story. Feng Tao is an editor from Shanghai Translation Publishing House. He has been reading Ishiguro's writing since the early 1990s. Like many other literature lovers in China, I learned about Ishiguro through The Remains of the Day and its film adaptation. When this novel won the Man Booker Prize in 1989, it caused quite a stir back then, because The Remains of the Day is about British aristocracy told from a butler's perspective. You have to understand that the tradition of having a butler is a unique development in British culture, while Ishiguro is a Japanese immigrant. So when he won the Booker Prize, Britain's most prestigious literary award, it was a big news. Out of curiosity, I started reading his books and took a fancy immediately. So, how did a Japanese-born writer grow up to become one of the brightest and most revered stars in Anglophone literature? Born in Nagasaki in 1954, Ishiguro left his native land Japan at the age of five, when his father was offered a job in Britain as an oceanographer. Growing up in Surrey in southern England, the young lad developed a strong interest in music. Among many songs he listened to, those produced by Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen became his favorites. 
since both songwriters had a literary approach in their lyrics. Inspired by his musical idols, Ishiguro started writing his own songs. After graduating from college, he even applied for jobs in recording studios. But the young man's dream of becoming a lyricist was not without its setbacks. In his later interview with the British newspaper The Guardian, this once guitar-playing hippie confessed, "I used to see myself as some sort of musician type, but there came a point when I thought, actually, this isn't me at all. I'm much less glamorous. I'm one of these people with corduroy jackets with elbow patches. It was a real come down." Almost by accident, the frustrated Ishiguro turned his literary bent from songwriting to something more serious. Starting creative writing at the University of East Anglia, he submitted a thesis for his master program, which later became his highly acclaimed debut, *A Pale View of Hills*. Few years later, he published his second book, *An Artist of the Floating World*. Both novels are set in his birthplace, Nagasaki, and just a few years after World War II. Yet Feng Tao, editor from Shanghai Translation Publishing House, argues that Kazuo Ishiguro is not your typical immigrant writer. Ishiguro, Salman Rushdie, and V.S. Naipaul are recognized as the three most outstanding immigrant writers at British Literati. However, Ishiguro is different compared with many others who focus on their immigrant experiences. Take Naipaul for example. Many of his early works are about how a young man comes to London from a foreign country and faces all kinds of culture shock, discomfort, and discriminations, which is a common theme in immigration literature. Yet for Kazuo Ishiguro, although his earliest works are set in Japan, those books have nothing to do with immigration. Instead, themes such as time, memory, and self-delusion run through his writings. These themes are particularly notable in his most renowned novel, *The Remains of the Day*. Published in 1989, this Booker Prize-winning novel charts the life of a painfully shy and repressed English butler, and was later turned into a highly noted movie. In an interview with a New York-based *Bomb* magazine, Ishiguro explained. I tend to be attracted to pre-war and post-war settings because I'm interested in this business of values and ideals being tested, and people having to face up to the notion that their ideals weren't quite what they thought they were before the test came. Following the tremendous success of *The Remains of the Day*, Kazuo Ishiguro has continued to push his writings further beyond the usual cultural norms of immigration literature. In the following decade, he published two novels. One is *The Unconsoled*, a dreamlike story taking place in an unspecified European city, while another is *When We Were Orphans*, which is about a Chinese-born British detective goes back to Shanghai to solve the mysteries surrounding the disappearance of his family members. However, once published, *When We Were Orphans* has received mixed reviews in China. As some readers complain that Ishiguro's depiction of Shanghai in the 1930s is not historically accurate, Feng Tao, who is in charge of the Chinese editions of Ishiguro's books, justifies the novelist's cause. 
The story is set in Shanghai. In fact, it could have happened in Istanbul, Moscow, or any other city. In this book, Shanghai merely serves as a geographical name. What the author looks for is emotional truth rather than historical accuracy. If Ishkulo's previous books do adhere to certain historical footing, then his 2005 dystopian work *Never Let Me Go* introduces a cold undercurrent of science fiction. My name is Kathy H. I'm 28 years old. These days, I spend most of my time not looking forwards, but looking back to what happened to us. 开始的时候，你就觉得。At first glance, you may think that this book features a group of students and their trifles in a normal British boarding school. The atmosphere is tranquil, and the plot seems to be filled with trivial matters. Yet slowly, as you read more, you will notice there is something wrong with the boarding school. All the details lead you to the conclusion that these students are actually clones. They are living, breathing humans. Yet they are bred for organ donation. The revelation could produce a dreadful impact as the once peaceful, idyllic Merry England suddenly changes. For me, that kind of emotion contrast is indelible. In 2010, Never Let Me Go was adapted into a multi-award-winning film featuring Carrie Mulligan, Kira Knightley, and Andrew Garfield as leading actors. Yet, for the author himself, his exploration into the fantastical elements hasn't come to an end. His latest novel, *The Buried Giant* from 2015, explores in a moving manner how memory relates to oblivion, history to the present, and fantasy to reality. In the book, an elderly couple goes on a road trip through an archaic English landscape. Hoping to reunite with their adult son, whom they have not seen for years, during their journey they come across some knights and encounter unworldly creatures such as a she dragon and ogres. But in the eyes of Feng Tao, a longtime Ishkulo fan, no matter how bold his literary hero tinkers with various genres, there is always something coherent in his oeuvres. I don't think he goes after changes wholeheartedly. There might be some twists in terms of plot, but for me, his style is consistent. He always raises some fundamental questions regarding time, memory, oblivion, and self-deception. That's why I think he is a terrific writer. His writings remind me of a classic Japanese aesthetic, which emphasizes on letting still water run deep. It's calm on the water. Yet, right underneath the seemingly restrained surface, the emotions are quite intense. Sometimes, when you finally realize what Ishiguro is writing about, the sheer emotional power will take your breath away. I find that contrast quite enchanting. His view is also echoed by Sarah Daniels, permanent secretary of the Swedish Academy. He's a writer of great integrity. Right from the start, he managed to、uh, find his voice. He had already found his voice, and. Has worked out a style that's precise, very sensitive to the casual, and even tender、uh, sometimes. Very held back, unassuming. That's probably one of the reasons that Katsuo Ishiguro became the recipient of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Literature. He is the first Briton to win the world's most prestigious literary award in a decade since 2011.
Doris Lessing's recognition in 2007. In its citation, the Academy said that Ishiguro's eight books are works of emotional force that uncover the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world. Sarah Daniels, permanent secretary of the Swedish Academy, concludes. He's a very interesting writer in many ways.、Um, I would say that if you mix、um, Jane Austen, her comedy of manners and her psychological insights, with Kafka, then I think you have Ishiguro in a nutshell. But for the newly crowned laureate, the news was totally unexpected. Facing journalists rushing to his house, this publicity shy writer said he hoped the kinds of themes he tackled in his works would actually be helpful to the climate of uncertainty in the world we have at the moment.、Uh, this is amazing and totally unexpected news for me. It comes at a time when the world is uncertain about its values, its leadership, and its safety. I just hope that my receiving this huge honor will, even in a small way, encourage the forces for goodwill and peace at this time. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. Welcome back. You are listening to Ink and Quill with Yang Yong. The annual Frankfurt Book Fair, the biggest get-together of publishing industry, dropped its curtain last Sunday. This year, nearly 290,000 visitors attended this five-day event, in which 7,300 exhibitors from over 100 countries and regions presented their new publications and exchanged views regarding book trading, copyright protection, and digital publishing. As the fair's veteran, China was no exception. So let's follow Wang Lei to catch up with some highlights of this literary carnival. The 69th edition of the Frankfurt Book Fair had a record number of foreign trade exhibitors, including its biggest ever Chinese contingent. More than 170 publishers brought in together nearly 2,000 books, upping the Chinese presence than never before. Chen Ping, the cultural counselor from the Chinese embassy to Germany, explains. In recent years, the Chinese publishing industry has progressed tremendously as the copyright exports have gradually increased. Now, the ratio between exported and imported publications is one to one point five. Which is a significant improvement compared with the previous ratio of one to two. Our goal is by 2020 a balance can be achieved. It's an arduous task, requiring input from many publishing houses. As the world's largest book trade fair, the Frankfurt Book Fair is immensely influential. Chinese books could resort to this platform to be introduced to global booksellers and publishers. At the same time, we purchase many foreign titles, which could facilitate cultural exchanges between China and the rest of the world. Hu Kaimin is the deputy editor in chief from Foreign Languages Press. This time, his firm has brought in books that focus on the development of modern China. One of them is China Speed, a reportage that documents the transformation of Chinese high-speed rail. This book was published when the Chinese railway system, as the pride of our nation, was under global spotlight. 
Personally, I think this book demonstrates our achievements after China opened up to the rest of the world in the late 1970s, and more especially the development during the past five years. Besides this book, we also brought some cultural-related publications this time, including a series of books that focus on the Belt and Road Initiative in nine languages. According to Hu, so far, Foreign Languages Press has already signed cooperation agreements with publishers from Germany, Lebanon, and Russia. But Hu's company is not the only one intending to carve out a way into the international market. From the biography of the late Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai to the history book Tea Nation, many Chinese titles have generated a buzz among foreign agencies. It seems that the gulf in intellectual property deals between China and other countries is not that wide anymore. Holger Volland, vice president of the Frankfurt Book Fair, echoes that change. China used to import many titles in the past. During the last years,、um, it exported more and more titles, and、um, this world is becoming、um, much smaller. In terms of that,、um, every person anywhere in the world、um, likes to read literature from everywhere in the world, also from China, of course. However, it's still a long way to go for Chinese publications to break into and then expand in foreign markets. Here is Jiang Dai from Tongji University Press. We don't know much about the book markets in Germany and France. Our understanding about the retailing market of American independent bookstores is limited as well. In the past, we didn't pay enough attention to that information. Now, all the Chinese publishers want to go global. Yet, translating your books into English is far from enough. We need to find a way to win the hearts of our foreign readers. The lack of professional translation from Chinese to foreign languages also poses barriers. This is Professor Roland Ottenberger from University of Würzburg. He came to the fair to promote Chinese novelist Jia Pingwa's 2013 work, *The Lantern Barrier*. According to him, though Chinese literature is not without gems, some works have never been translated into foreign languages. Which definitely limit readership, but for Wang Yongbo, head of the Phoenix Juvenile and Children's Publishing Cooperation, the issues mentioned above can easily be settled. During the Frankfurt Book Fair, his company organized a book tour for Cao Wenxuan, a Chinese children's writer. It was a tour that provided an opportunity for him and others to work with European publishers and present opportunities for more Chinese writers to communicate with their foreign readers. Selling right is not our sole concern. We also pay great attention to the development of Chinese literature and the growth of Chinese writers by organizing book tours. We could promote their ideas and help the world understand China better. In the past, what we did the most was import titles from other countries. Now, as our publishing industry blooms and more world-class works come into being, it's time for us to promote Chinese writers and their works overseas. Bestseller, smash hit, page turner. Ink and Quill delves into the very heart of the works that make us laugh, cry, and sigh. 
If one day mankind possesses the ability to journey through time, which period in history would you want to travel to? The hippie days of the 1960s, or the intellectual and artistic renaissance? In the eyes of Chinese writer Chen Zhou, the best option is probably the Song Dynasty, an era running from the mid 10th century to the end of the 13th century. Want to know why? Let's follow Liu Xiangwei to seek out the answer. It was during the 1270s when Italian merchant Marco Polo, the most celebrated Western explorer on the Silk Road, traveled to Hangzhou, the capital of the Southern Song Dynasty. Once he arrived, this wide-traveled trader was beguiled by the prosperity, refinement, and magnificence of this Chinese water town, and was not cheery of praising this finest and most splendid city in the world. Later in his great travelogue, however, as Marco Polo's words and memory have been gradually obliterated through time, the Tang Dynasty instead of Song has been generally recognized as the golden age in Chinese history. But Chen Zhou, a history graduate from Peking University, voices her retort. In fact, compared with the Tang Dynasty, the secular culture during the Song period was much more developed, particularly after the abolishment of Li Fang. An urban planning system that separated residential areas with marketplace, the commerce, mundane life, and mass entertainment of Chinese people had been improved tremendously. Her latest book, *The Time Traveler's Guide to the Song Dynasty*, or in Chinese, *Chuan Yue Bai Shi Tong: Song Chao Bu Ke Bu Zhi's is a fitting testimony for her claim. Instead of emphasizing on the merits and vices of emperors and intellectuals, like most of today's history books do, Chen Zhou focuses on the lifestyle of ordinary folks, such as Suju, the most flourishing sport of that time and the earliest form of football games. Compared with modern football, Suju is far less competitive. It's a kind of performance or stage show. On the field, two groups of contestants would mimic the movements of vaudeville. The game was always played at the royal court to entertain ministers and foreign envoys. Of course, the game was popular among the common people as well. There was even a club named Qi Yunshe, which was equivalent of today's football association. Browsing through pages, readers may be surprised by those less-known facts being present. For example, men could wear floral headdresses without being questioned about their masculinity. Unmarried women actually enjoyed equal right of inheritance with their male siblings. While the term xianggong, which is frequently heard in period dramas as the appellation of husband, was in fact exclusive to chancellors during the Song Dynasty. The writer says she has no intention to draw readers into the depth of history, but rather to showcase the diversity and fun of those long gone days. As a time traveler, when you embrace a new social life, food, clothing, housing, and transportation will become your priorities. Then things like social engagement and entertainment should be taken into account, which are the advanced demands in life. Written in a humorous yet meticulous manner, 
The Time Traveler's Guide to the Song Dynasty flakes off the cobwebs and dust of history and connects the dots between the past and present. Here you will know how a recipe invented by literary giant Su Dongpo has overturned people's dietary habits and why the ways of drinking tea could affect the development of Chinese porcelain industry. As a fierce history lover, the author admits that compared with other periods of Chinese history, Song is a vulnerable dynasty in terms of its military might and political sophistication, but its impact should not be overlooked. When you look at the history of the Song dynasty, the relationship among the intellectuals was not hostile as we expect. Although they may not share the same political opinion at the court, people of that time respect the personality and the knowledge of each other. In my opinion, it's an open, inclusive, and lively society. Thank you, Xiang Wei, for introducing us to the book The Time Traveler's Guide to the Song Dynasty. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus, or simply download our podcast by searching the keyword Ink and Quill on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Yang Yong. See you next week.